We're going to read Matthew chapter 6 from verses 5 to 13 and then some verses from chapter 7 as well. Again, let's hear God's word. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And then in chapter 7, uh, verses 7 to 11. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Let's pray together. Father, we pray that in these moments you would be our vision and our hearing and our understanding. And as we come to your word, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts bless your name, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. There's an old saying, isn't there, that you learn something new every day. The saying's true in all kinds of ways, but academics and even governments are beginning to appreciate the value of adults going back to school and learning a new skill. People who are maybe fully trained in one area but benefit from learning something new or sharpening up what they once knew but they've got a bit rusty. My old school, um, just over 10 years ago, uh, when I was still there, that's been slightly generous to myself, uh, they adopted a new mission statement, and it's this, developing lifelong learners in a caring, creative community. I don't know how well they actually do that, but that's their aim. And being a lifelong learner is apparently very good for you. It's good for the community. According to research commissioned by Whitehall, learning a language or brushing up on math skills can boost life satisfaction in the same way as a £750 a year pay rise. I don't know how they worked that out, but that's what they said. And a few years back, uh, Rochdale Borough Council in England said that they had been able to calculate a £3.68 return for every pound they'd spent in its citizens' curriculum. Now, again, I have no idea how they got those figures, but a 368% return on every pound spent sounds pretty good to me. 
And as Christians, being a lifelong learner comes with the job description, doesn't it? Jesus told his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations. And if we're disciples, we have a discipline. We're learners. We were thinking about that last week. We follow Jesus and we learn along the way. And one area of our lives where there is a lifetime of learning to be done undoubtedly is in prayer. In Luke chapter 11, we see the disciples ask Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray. I would imagine that's something we can all identify with on some level. Maybe you have similar questions. How should I pray? What should I pray? How can I pray better? Well, hopefully this little series on Sunday evenings will help out a bit. Um, I'm sorry to say you're preachers, myself and I think Scott next week and Marty the week after. Um, We don't claim to be experts on the subject by any means, but we do have a great teacher and we have great material to work with in the scriptures. And in fact, in Luke 11, when Jesus introduces this prayer, he says, when you pray, say, which suggests that actually it's the very words he says that we should use, we should recite it. And I think in church today, we're probably not very uh, diligent about that. Um, We did it a little bit earlier. We haven't done it, I don't know, the last time we did do it here. We don't like the idea of saying it as a ritual. We we think that kind of becomes meaningless, but that's that's what it says in the Bible. It's probably not meaningless if we just concentrate on what we're saying. But we also have the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6. And this time, Jesus introduces it slightly differently. He says, this then is how you should pray, which suggests maybe not actually saying it word for word, but a method, how you do it. It's a, it's a pattern or a framework that we can use to shape our own prayers. One way of doing so might be to go through the Lord's Prayer just line by line and say each line, but then expand on it with our own specific words of praise or confession or of request. And I'm not sure that there really is any better way to pray than that. So that's what this series on the Lord's Prayer is trying to do. Um, It's to try and help us all understand these, these various parts of the Lord's Prayer so that we can use it to structure our own prayers and to do that with greater appreciation of what we're saying. And so we start at the beginning, our Father in heaven. And this evening we're gonna see essentially um, three things from this phrase, um, because I'm a Presbyterian and I'm preaching, so there are three things. It gives us the context for prayer, it gives us our posture in prayer, and it gives us our confidence in prayer. I probably should have alliterated those as well, but I'm not that good a preacher. So firstly then, the the context for prayer. And what I mean by that is essentially this tells us what prayer is and what prayer isn't. It gives us that context. It shows us that in, in Jesus, prayer isn't actually a new thing but something that we continue on um, in the same vein of the Old Testament saints and that's why we looked at a prayer um, in Isaiah 63. I've been reading a book recently um, because a friend told me it changed his life in prayer. So I thought, right, I'm going to go, I'm going to read that. It's called Calling on the Name of the Lord by Gary Miller. And you might remember we read one of Gary Miller's uh, books together during the pandemic um, in an online book club. Now, this book is much less of a page turner than that book was. I'll just throw that out there. Um, This is an academic book. But I've been reading it because what he does in this book is he assesses all the prayers in the Bible from Genesis through to Revelation. So it's quite a hefty book. 
with the exception of the Psalms, because otherwise the book would have lasted forever. Um, so he, he picks a few of those out. But what he argues through this book is this. This is a quote from the book. He says, prayer throughout the Bible is to be primarily understood as asking God to come through on what he has already promised. And what Gary Miller is arguing is that when we look at the, the big picture of the Bible, we see God making promises to his people. There are covenants that come along with covenant blessings through Abraham and Moses and David and ultimately through Jesus in the new covenant. God calls out a people for himself and he promises to bless them and he promises to bless all nations through them. He promises to defeat their enemies, whether those are people who would seek to attack God's people or whether it's our greater enemies of sin and death. Now, often there are um, little clauses, if you like, if you want to think of a covenant as a contract. God promises that if his people obey him and walk in his ways, then he'll bless them and he will save them and deliver them and he'll make them prosper but particularly in the covenant he makes with Moses, uh, there are covenant curses as well. If the people disobey and wander, then they will be punished. And that's the situation we find ourselves in, in Isaiah 63 and 64. But Isaiah is asking God to come through on his promises. I hope you picked it up as we read because we're obviously not going to read it all again. But Isaiah says, oh Lord, in the past through Moses, you saved us, you delivered them, you parted the waters for them and you blessed them and you became our father, but we disobeyed you and our hearts have wandered from you. No one in Israel inquires of you anymore. He says, God, you're our father, but Abraham doesn't know us. Israel doesn't recognize us. We've disobeyed, we've failed. We haven't held up our side of the covenant, but oh Lord, that you would intervene and come through on your promises. Isaiah says, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down and deliver us and restore us again and do for us what you've promised. Have a people for yourself again, our father, us, your children, you're the potter, Wear the clay in your hands. Don't hold back, Lord. Deliver us just like you have promised that you will. Now, I think that Gary Miller in the book, he probably overstates his case a little bit, if I'm being picky, but I do think he's on to something. Prayer in the Bible all essentially takes its shape in that way, or at least sits within the context of covenant relationship. God is our Father and he's promised to call us out as his people to follow him. He's promised to bless us and deliver us from our enemies. We do see it in the Psalms um, as another example, even in more difficult places for us to understand where the Psalmist asks for things that seem really out there to us, that, that he would destroy their enemies, that the enemies would be slain. But Ultimately, what's being asked is that the Lord will bless his people and that he'll take away any obstacles to that happening. It doesn't make those Psalms easy, but it does at least put them in context. We also have deeply personal Psalms like Psalm 51 after David has committed adultery. He says, restore to me the joy of your salvation and renew a right spirit within me. So that's, that's the personal bit. But David goes on to say, then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous. As much as David's prayer is very personal, 
It's for a purpose within God's covenant relationship with his people. Lord, restore me so that you can bless Jerusalem. You can bless your people again. Now, let's bring it back to ourselves for a moment. Praying in Jesus' name, that means we know God as our Father. We come before God also with enemies, with sin and temptation and the devil and and the world even. And we come before God with failures. And yet we also come to our Father knowing the promises of God to his people, that he has called us out from the world as his people in Christ, in the one who is the new covenant, the new blood of the covenant. He's promised to deliver us from our enemies, to forgive our sins, and to bless us. And so that's our context for prayer. We stand in line after these great believers in the Bible. Thou, my great Father, I, thy true Son, thou in me dwelling, and thou with me one. We come before God as our loving Father. It says in Colossians 1 that he, that is the Father, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And so that's our context of prayer. We're God's children. We come confident of the blessings that we find in his word. We can come with our own problems and our failures. We perhaps even come like Isaiah, knowing the discipline of God, but we can call on him to come through in his promises, to bless us and to prosper us. And I suppose seeing things in that context means we won't come with the wrong attitude. This tells us what prayer is, but it also tells us what prayer isn't. We won't need to pray like the hypocrites Jesus mentions who pray just to be seen by others, to be seen as some great prayer because that's just not what prayer is. It's actually not really about the prayer very much. And we don't need to keep babbling like the pagans that Jesus talks about. We can certainly pour out our hearts to the Lord. The Bible calls us to do that. That might be sometimes in the form of many words and sometimes that's appropriate, but it isn't often the case. When we go to God as our Father and we understand that he's our Father and we know that we're his and he loves us and that he's promised to bless us, we don't need to convince him to give us the blessings that he's already promised to give us. He already knows. So we can just ask him to come through on those promises in our lives because we're his children. Jesus says it in Matthew 6, verses 6 and 8. He says, but when you pray, go into your room Close the door and pray to who? Your father who is unseen. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. It doesn't need to be in front of others. It doesn't need to be lengthy. When we pray our father, it prevents us from praying to be seen or with too many words. It prevents us from being selfish. It also prevents us from asking for ridiculous things. Father, I pray that I would win the lottery or that I would get a beach body even though I eat a lot of cake. It just kind of stops you from doing that when you see yourself in the line of the saints of the Bible. Now, we can certainly pray for the things that we need. Um, We're taught to pray, give us each day our daily bread. But the words, our Father, give us a context in prayer that we are God's people. We're his children, so it's not lots of money or a physique or an easy life that we're to ask him for, but the things that he's actually promised that he will do for us, to deliver us from our enemy, the devil, to bless us, to make us more like Jesus, to do us good even when that is hard for us, 
to forgive us, to give us joy and delight in him. We thought about that last Sunday night too, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's what a disciple is meant to do. So the line, our Father in heaven, firstly gives us the context for prayer. It reminds us of what we're doing. And secondly, it gives us our posture for prayer. Now, I'm not talking about whether we stand or sit or kneel or whatever. What I mean by our posture in prayer is that we pray with Jesus to our Father. We pray with Jesus. It's not just saying that in praying our Father that we identify with God's people and call on him to fulfill promises in our lives. It is that. But the fact that Jesus uses the words our Father is maybe actually the most astonishing part of the prayer. Because we don't just share with all of God's people throughout history, we also share sonship with Jesus. Thou, my great Father, I thy true Son, thou in me dwelling and I with thee, one. Resist any urges that hymnal compilers will have to change those words. They're not sexist. It's a theological point. Thou, my great Father, I thy true Son. It's because we're in Christ. So it applies to, to men and women the same. We share Jesus, um, we share the Father with Jesus. And us men have to be the bride of Christ, so it works two ways. It's our Father. Obviously, that means that as brothers and sisters, we share a Father. And the implication of that is as God's children, we should meet together to pray. It's our Father, not my Father, our Father. And that, I'm not going to dwell on that, but it's worth saying. It means that we should pray together as disciples. But it means more than that. When Jesus says our Father, it means we share the Father with him. So we know this is true uh, in John chapter 20. For example, Jesus says, do not hold on to me for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. The relationship that Jesus has with the Father is in some sense the same as the relationship that we now have with God the Father. Now, we don't become God, obviously, but there is a, there's a very tight parallel. Jesus is the Son of God. He shares in the one divine being with Father and Spirit. He's eternally loved by the Father, love without start and love without end. And the disciples see Jesus pray many times and they see that intimacy that was enjoyed in heaven. They see it now continue on earth. And then he turns around to them and he says, when you pray, say, our Father, not just my Father, Tim Chester says, it's as if Jesus is saying, pray with me, share my relationship with God, for you are loved as I am loved. When we pray, something of Jesus' experience of his Father's love becomes our experience. His intimacy and joy with his Father become our intimacy and joy. His access in prayer when we pray in his name to his Father is our access in prayer. Ordinary prayer prayer that wouldn't impress anybody, prayer that isn't meant to be seen by other people, unexciting, simple prayer in a room with the door closed becomes, because of what Jesus invites us to do, it becomes intimate, joyful, special prayer with the God of the universe, our Father. Now, that's quite mind-blowing, but it's the way of Christ. In simple, humble prayer, we find the Father's welcome, we find the same welcome that Jesus finds. 
Now, if you're uh, new around here or if you maybe only come along in the evenings and you, you haven't seen my family, you might not know that I'm a dad and uh, I have three girls, um, two who are quite close together and one who's a bit younger. And one of the joys of being a dad is when they come to ask you for help. You know, they want you to fix something. My girls think that I can fix anything and I'm pretty useless with my hands most of the time, but, but they think daddy's great. You know, they ask you to do a button on their clothes that they can't manage or they wonder what a word means in a book that they're reading or on TV. Or, you know, somebody said something to them at school or pushed them over or something and um, it made them feel sad or angry and someone did something that doesn't seem fair to them or they just want a hug to feel better. It's part of the joys of being a father. But our relationship is far from perfect. And in fact, sometimes our kids know how to press all our buttons and to press them all at once. There are days when the older two in particular, you know, they argue about who gets to pick the next TV program. They argue about who gets to wear the Aurora costume. They argue about who sits in which seat. They argue about who gets to sit on daddy's side of the car. That's quite a common one. That happened this morning. They argue about who's going to go to the toilet first. And there are two toilets in our house. There's such a joy, but there are some days when that joy seems a bit further away than other days. And to be perfectly honest, you might notice the typo in my script here. It's not always their fault. I obviously subconsciously wrote, it's always their fault. <laughs> but it's not always their fault. Sometimes there are days when something has put me in a bad mood. There are days when I'm tired and impatient with them, or days when I'm stressed and, and maybe I don't exactly come across as available to them. But our Heavenly Father isn't like that. The relationship between Jesus and his father doesn't suffer from the imperfections that my relationships with my dad or with my children does. And when we pray, our father, we, we join in that relationship. And we come into it with shortcomings, but because these are forgiven in Christ, we actually have the same posture, the same position as Jesus does when he prays to his father. Now, this doesn't mean that we can't pray to the Son or to the Spirit. Um, I think we can and we should, and we've thought a bit about this in our Sunday evenings um, recently. Um, maybe to help us think about this and um, think about some of the Christmas readings, so like Isaiah 9, where it says, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, so we're talking about the Son, and the government shall be on his shoulder and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. So he's the everlasting father. It's perfectly appropriate that Jesus teaches us to pray our father, and we know we can talk to Jesus. The same is true of the spirit. Remember the angel said to Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the most high will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the son of God. Jesus was conceived of the Holy Spirit, and we're told that therefore he is the son of God. So if he's the son, then, well, God's his father. So there are days when we say, Lord Jesus, you, you've promised I can come to you when I'm weary and heavy laden, and you'll give me rest. Lord, I need that just now. I'm burdened, and I need to lay that on you. There are times when we pray to the Spirit, and we say, I need you to guide me just now, because I don't know what to do. So when Jesus teaches us to pray, our Father, he isn't excluding the fact that we can talk to him or to the Spirit. In fact, I think the witness of the Bible is that we should do that. 
but he is teaching us something of our posture, our access to God in prayer is the same as his. And that's why we pray in his name. So our Father teaches us about the context of prayer, that we're God's children, and the posture of prayer, that we have the access that Jesus does. And then thirdly, the line, our Father in heaven, and the emphasis on in heaven, gives us confidence in prayer. Now, if we didn't already have confidence from being God's children and recipients of all his covenant promises, and if we didn't already have confidence in having our position in prayer as the same as that of Jesus, well, then we should also know that we can come with confidence because our Father is in heaven. Now, to say that he's in heaven means that he's powerful is possibly to state the blindingly obvious, but it's something that needs to be stated all the same. We began this evening with Isaiah's vision of the Lord of hosts on the throne of heaven, Lord God Almighty. And the fact that he's in heaven means that he's powerful beyond what we can imagine and nothing is impossible for him. The Bible says he's able to do more than we could ever ask or imagine. Again, going back to that prayer that we read in Isaiah 63 and 64, those chapters we read, which pray to God as our Father, they're full, of his, they're full of confidence because he's in heaven. Look down from heaven and see from your lofty throne, holy and glorious, where are your zeal and your might? You, O Lord, are our Father, our Redeemer from old is your name. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you as when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil, come down to make your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you. For when you did awesome things that we didn't expect, you came down and the mountains trembled before you. Since ancient times, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of all who wait on him. It's no wonder then that Jesus tells us to pray to our Father in heaven and he says we can do it with confidence. He says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. It's not like speaking to an earthly father like me. I mean, even I want to give nice things to my children most of the time. But Jesus says, which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, you earthly fathers, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven, your heavenly Father, give good gifts to those who ask him? Now obviously this runs us into some maybe slightly difficult territory because sometimes when we pray, the Father doesn't give us that good gift that we want or that we think we need. Sometimes the answer is not now. Sometimes the answer is just plain old no. And God's people throughout every age have wrestled with this. Isaiah um, was wrestling with it. A while ago here in Ravenhill, we did a series uh, in the book of Habakkuk, one of the minor prophets. And you may or not, may not remember or you may or may not know that Habakkuk is a, a prime example of that. He prays to his covenant God. He, he does the Gary Miller thing and he says, God, we're your covenant people and you're meant to be blessing us. You're meant to be helping us overcome our enemies. So why are the wicked prospering? Why are we crying out to you that there's violence and you're not doing anything about it? And the Lord replies, Habakkuk, I'm going to do something. If I told you, you wouldn't even believe it, but 
My people have turned away from me. And so the punishment is coming. The, the covenant curse is going to come. I'm going to come through on the covenant curse. I'm going to raise up another nation against them, and the other nation is going to win. But he does say, he does say that he will keep a remnant and that he will come through in his covenant promises. And part of Habakkuk's response is really striking. He says this in Habakkuk 3.16. He says, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will wait quietly for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. As we come to God our Father in prayer, we, we do it in the context of being his children. So we know that even if the Lord's purposes are unclear to us, even if in Habakkuk's example, he makes it very clear that those purposes are going to be really difficult, we can still trust that a day of trouble will come for those who stand against us and for the things which weigh us down. Ultimately, God will fulfill his promises to us and bless us. That's the confidence Habakkuk had before the Lord, and it's, it's what happened to God's people. They went off into exile, God's judgment for their rejection of him, but he brought them back, and he sent the Messiah they were waiting for into the world, and he defeated all their enemies and all of our enemies through his death and resurrection. We've come a long way from the first line of the Lord's prayer, but as we come to God as our Father in heaven, it gives us our posture that we stand with Christ, with our sins forgiven, and we enjoy his access to the throne of grace. We have that context of being partakers in his covenant promises, so we come confidently, knowing the fact that he's our heavenly Father means that nothing is impossible for him, and even though we mightn't always see his promises, and I, I don't want to gloss over that, we mightn't always see his purposes, Ultimately, he is at work for his good and for his glory. So let's turn to him now in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we confess that so often we are slow to turn to you in prayer, even in moments of great need. Father, forgive us for neglecting this wonderful gift and this wonderful access that you give us. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Lord, forgive us for trying to go it on our own. Forgive us for not stopping to think about what your purposes might be in various situations in our lives. But Lord, thank you that we come before you as our loving Heavenly Father, as the one who will do good to us, whose plans are to do us good and not harm. So, Lord, help us to, to come before you confidently, knowing that you are God in heaven, able to do more than we could ever even think to ask or imagine. Lord, give us confidence as we pray to our heavenly Father. In Jesus' name, amen.